Hi, everybody. It's uh, 12 o'clock Central. Greg is hopping with energy. Maybe we'll ask him about that in a second. Thank but you. welcome. Welcome to episode 27 of Ask Us Anything. You can tell, hey, we're both wearing Kinexus shirts today. I'm Mark Raven, Senior Advisor with Kinexus. Thanks for joining us. And we are joined by Greg Jacobson. I'm the CEO and one of the two co-founders of Kinexus. I'm sorry I don't have a Kinexus coffee mug today. That would have completed. That would have completed because I'm using the Yeti. Yeah, see that that's a great mug. I've got <laughs> I've got one of those. So in the spirit of ask us anything, like why why are you so bouncing full of uh, of energy today? So I could answer this question in a short way, but I'm going to answer it in a long way. So I am in my mid 40s and everyone told me that in my 40s, my body was start breaking down and I didn't necessarily believe it because I really had no medical issues of significance. And in November, on November 2nd, I ruptured my ACL playing squash, which is what I love to do. Had it repaired in December and then have come to this realization over the last three to four months that, you know, as your body gets older, it's kind of like. Uh, it's kind of like an old car. It was the best analogy that one of my good friends told me where you had to take it in for maintenance and you have to train and you have to do things that make your body better. Because when you're you're younger, just the body just works. It's kind of like a new car, right? You just just works. Yeah. And so I've been reading a lot about your core. And I think I had a lot of um, issues with um, instability in my hips and strength. And And so one of the things I learned is that these bouncy balls are really good for your core. And so <laughs> I have a bouncy ball that I'm using and uh, I am I have new insoles in my my shoes because apparently my my arch was starting to lower and so I am I am kind of rejuvenated and you're probably thinking to yourself Greg why are you going off on this this entire riff about these things but I think the applicability to lean is is literally one to one because if you think yeah. that you're going to develop a culture of continuous improvement by by simply training everybody and then um, kind of walking away without continuing to add energy, then I think you are going to be severely disappointed. And and I think that's the same case if I think I'm going to be able to go out and play high level high level squash two right. or three times a week without taking care of my body and, and doing all the other training that that you need to do in order to run around the squash court um, yeah. and I was severely disappointed with my ACL rupture. So anyway. Well, and, and when you talk about taking care of your body and being proactive and not just getting it fixed better every time it breaks down. I mean, that, that reminds me of the lean concept of uh, TPM or total, pre- uh, total productive maintenance. Sometimes it's called total preventive maintenance, but the idea is to take care of, your machinery to keep it running. And I, I think there are parallels to health. I mean, you're, you're an ER physician. You're often treating people after it's something's already gotten too bad, where um, one health challenge for ourselves as individuals is, um, no offense to you and other ER, ER doctors, but how do we keep ourselves healthy and in one piece to avoid trips to the ER or the oh, doctor? There's nothing, right? there's nothing more than ER doctors want than uh, to to really not treat patients that this all could have been prevented. Um, there's absolutely no, I mean there there even if we optimize all of our prevention, there is a hundred percent still a role for an emergency department. So 
it's it's it, there's nothing more frustrating as an ER doc than just kind of seeing people that come back in and back in and and you know that all of this could have been prevented if um, people would um, would you know take care, better care of their body or have better compliance. But I'll be honest with you, a lot of this has to do with habits. It's why we talk about the power of habit with um, Duhigg. It's why we gave out, I gave out a copy of James Clear's Atomic Habits at our annual meeting in January, another non-lean book that is, is super important if you are working on a transformation or, or working in continuous improvement organization, understanding yeah. basic behavioral science of how we can start doing something repetitive is absolutely fundamental and absolutely critical um, to be successful in, in this type of improvement work. Yeah. So speaking of improvement work, we have questions about improvement work. So we'll yeah. go ahead and jump in. Um, so there's a question here. How do you convince management that implementing lean is a long-term methodology? So we, you could say, how do you convince a patient to do things that are um, less expensive, you know, to maintain health instead of going and fixing um, illness after the fact. But, but you know, really back to the core of the question, I think there's a couple interesting pieces. So, you know, first off, lean is a long-term methodology. Uh, you know, if you look at the Toyota Way principles, the 14 principles from Jeff Liker's book that he developed in conjunction with Toyota, principle number one is all about making decisions based on the long-term, even at the expense of the short term. That is, I think, number one for a reason, and it's one of the most important. And maybe the, the, the failure to embrace that is one of the biggest causes of lean um, not taking root in an organization. So how do we convince management of that or convince management of anything? We can share those elements of the Toyota philosophy instead of just sharing lean tools. Um, you know, how do we help management discover this for themselves? Do we introduce them to other executives who are already share this belief? That might be that might be one way. Greg, what what are your thoughts on? Well, I mean, for one, I think this is an awesome question. Number two, I think we could probably do a webinar on this. Mm -hmm. uh, number three, I'm gonna I'm gonna get on my soapbox and rip on on something that happened yesterday. But but before I get on that. It, it's almost like asking someone, are you able to work out one time really, really, really hard and then be fit for the rest of your life? Right. I mean, I mean, naturally, everyone would realize that that doesn't make any sense. You know, right. spending you know, 30 minutes a few times a week or every day is going to have a ton more effect than, you know, doing 24 hours of fitness all at once. And so the that understanding i think is the same type of understanding that 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 doing continuous improvement at an organization is a lifestyle um versus an event number number two um i, I love seth godin's godin's work and and he talks about what's the definition of culture you know people like us do things like this and that's essentially what our continuous improvement experts are trying to do is getting people to do things like this continuously. And then I'm going to on my soapbox of what happened yesterday at an organization. And I'm at, it's actually, I'm, I'm going to challenge you to this question too, Mark, because I, 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 I can tell you what I've seen, but I think you have 
probably even, I mean, I know you have more experience than I do. So I'm interested to know how you're going to um, take take to this question. But okay. we had an organization yesterday where they they notified us that um, that they um, dissolved their continuous improvement department because they've been doing continuous improvement now for two years and everyone's been trained and everyone's been doing it. So now there's no need for a continuous improvement department because everyone should be doing continuous improvement. And I, I know that 10 or, or 15 years ago when I was just kind of starting my journey, I guess 15 years ago when I was just starting my journey into this type of work, I would have said, okay, yeah, you know, that, that kind of makes sense offhand. You know, yes, we, we all know that doing continuous improvement work needs to be something that everyone does, right? That's almost the definition of, of when we said every person right. improves the organization every day. But what we've seen here at Kinexus and working now with hundreds of companies and, and talking with thousands of companies is I cannot identify a single successful organization that does not have at least one full-time person thinking about doing continuous improvement. And right. I don't know what the ratio is. Maybe it's one to 200. Maybe it's one to 1,000. It's probably not more than one to 2,000 um, experts per people. But I, I think it, it, the analogy I immediately came up with was if you're a professional tennis player, does it mean you no longer need a coach? I mean, of course right. not. I mean, top 10 players all have coaches. In fact, they have some of the best coaches. And so while 100% the, the CI um, the experts shouldn't be doing the improvement work, they should be helping right. the right. coach. But for us to think that, that oh, once it becomes a long-term thing and everyone's trained and everyone's doing it, that, oh, we can kind of rip out the continuous improvement folks is, I think, a huge fallacy in thought process. And, and that is 100% yeah. not a biased uh, answer because I don't get paid to be a CI expert at organizations. Like, you know. Yeah. Right. So, well, I'm throwing it out there, Mark. Well, I, I agree with you. Look, I mean, even Toyota still has a central TPS group. In Japan, they still have a total quality management group. Like you said, the intent of a group like that is not to go and do it, but they may be master coaches, trainers, keepers of the standards, if you will. There's still a role for that. So I've heard of um, manufacturing companies, hospitals that will say, yeah, yeah, this is embedded. This is just how we do things now. That could be true, or that's that's easy to say, and and maybe it's not true. The proof is in the pudding. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think I, I could understand that group shrinking, but I would hope to see those lean specialists redeployed to become leaders within the organization. If they're just being ripped to cut costs, I'm probably more skeptical uh, that this is really just the way we do things now. Pardon the quotey fingers. Yep. Um, yeah, that happens. So, so long-term methodology. I think the easiest analogy we can think about is: can you can you simply do 24 hours of exercise? Is that the same thing as doing you know 15 to, to 30 minutes multiple times a week? And and I think it, it's it's pretty clear that once you start doing this type of work for for six to 12 months, you start to realize that the benefits of doing improvement work one they're going to they're going to evolve over time uh, yeah. i think you're going to initially see you know people getting engaged and we kind of see the, the the categories of of improvements that people make very kind of personal 
employee satisfaction and then and then we start to see people move into things like you know customer or patient safety and then even kind of tertiarily evolve into um, cost savings and, and really kind of help help healthy financial type things. So one, there's going to be that, but but two, this is this is definitely not a fad kind of exercise or diet. You're just you're yeah. not going to be scratch the surface of of what this can do for your organization. Yeah. I mean there are parallels thinking back to again like to health and events or one-off things versus thinking of lean as a lifestyle change. You know, I've I've had people ask, oh, is lean just a fad? I'm like, well it's only a fad in organizations that are susceptible to fads, right? right? Exactly. So somebody could adopt whatever hot diet is out there and then say, well, I tried that and it didn't work. And the last 10 fad diets that I tried didn't work either. Um, you know, at some point, you know, it, 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 you think, well, it's not a matter of bolting on some sort of methodology. I need to step back and try to figure out root causes for uh, low organizational performance or root causes of um, our individual health. It might not be only about diet. It might not only be about exercise. You know, there's uh, d- different aspects to look at. So, you know, I think maybe just t- wrapping up the, you know, the question, you know, if, if I'm working with an organization, I've worked with some that are very serious about lean being a long-term commitment. They realize culture change is not easy, it's not fast, but it's it's necessary and it's meaningful. Um, I don't know if we can create the belief if somebody is already um, convinced that lean is just a bunch of short-term tools and cost-cutting exercises. I don't, I don't know if you can convince them that lean is at its best, at its core, a long-term methodology. A great- you can introduce people to the idea, but you can't convince them, I don't think. It'd be a great question for for Mark Chapman, who I think is coming up with a webinar. I mean, he talks about the he's going to talk about the neuroscience of of changing um, your mind about things, and so yeah, it'd be a, a good good plug for a a, a good a fellow ER doctor, a friend of Kynex, yeah. someone that that has seen on the front line real impact to patient care by utilizing um, lean and continuous improvement principles. Yeah. So. Yeah, and Mark's Mark's webinar is indeed coming up on March 3rd. Uh, it's titled "A Great Idea Isn't Enough for Successful Change." That's uh, March 3rd. You you can register for that now or at, at, after we're done here at kinexus.com/webinars. Um, that um, registration is open right now. But talking about um, reg, uh, uh, let's go back to the second question. Um, while CI continuous improvement has been around for a long time with many different tools for continuous improvement. What are the most recent new tools or systems of continuous improvement that are gathering momentum? And the question asks in the manufacturing industry primarily, we could probably answer this more broadly. I think there's one that probably comes to mind right away. Greg, you can go go first. Well, I mean, Kinexus is the one that comes to mind, you know, for, for me. And, and I'll just say simply this kind of recognition. I'll answer it generally and then specifically. But this recognition that that paper and, and bulletin boards, while they are, I mean, I'm using paper now. I love paper for certain things. Um, yeah. They do not foster um, collaboration, especially when people are distributed within space and in time. And they break down when you're trying to do this across a really large, you know, a thousand person, five thousand person, twenty thousand, fifty thousand 
places with that that might have factories literally over over multiple continents. And so I think there is this recognition. I've I've seen it just in my short time back in you know, 08, 09, when I was talking to people about uh, utilizing technology to facilitate this type of work, there was a lot of resistance to it. And now there's right. there really isn't that much resistance. Um, it's it's a matter of kind of figuring out well how how can it truly add value and not get in the way. And so um, obviously I'm biased and, and I think Kinexus is, is the best platform to do that. Um, and, and then a, a quick plug simply because we've just been listening to our customers for 10 years and, uh-huh. and doing a PDSA cycle over and over and over. And so I feel like we, we've, um, we've hit a lot of the things that our customers and continuous improvement experts feel uh, that technology can really add value. But so, so to me, that would, that's obviously the, the natural thing that I, but Add to that marker. Yeah, so I mean, you know, there, there's different ways of, of answering the question about systems. So yeah, Kinexus is one. In terms of methodologies, I, I, I don't know if tool is quite, quite the right word, but um, the book Toyota Kata by Mike Rother was probably published about 10 years ago. I don't know the exact date. And Greg is sitting there in Austin um, this week. I've attended it before. Uh, well, I haven't attended Katacon, but our friends at Lean Frontiers, I've attended um, some of their events in the past, and, and those are great events. Uh, Katacon 6 was being held in Austin this week. And, and, and Greg, you weren't there, but Kinexus had some representation there, I know. Kinexus was there. It was a great opportunity for us because literally it was a quarter mile from our Austin uh, office. And so we had an opportunity to take a bunch of people that typically don't go to conferences to go to conferences. So for example, Adam Darnell, who leads our training enablement, um, was with one of our sales uh, uh, folks, um, uh, Matt Banna. And so every day he brought a different person to to kind of experience um, his gimba, if you will. And in fact, entire team I'm, I'm alone in the office right now because the entire team um, just went to have lunch at the hotel and uh, peek at the booth and um, I think it's where our user conference is going to be Kinexicon mm-hmm. and yeah. in September so if you remember a Kinexus customer um, our website is up and we are taking registrations for that as well but um, it's, been a, it's been a good event I think Mark you spent a few days there as well well, um, I, I, I want to go to Katacon one day. And, you know, I'm still, I'm very much a beginner when it comes to learning the Toyota Kata methodology. In fact, the book came out um, in the middle of 2009. So I wasn't too far off about how long that's been around. And I, I'll tell you, my, my first impression, which I now I've learned was, I think, not the most accurate impression. Because I, I looked, uh, you know, I, I, I know Mike Rother's work. I, I respect him immensely. Um, from from previous work, but when I first learned about Toyota Kata, I wondered, well, like I already know Kaizen, plan, do, study, adjust cycles. Like, do I really need another word? Do I really need another methodology? And as as I've given it more of a chance, and wouldn't claim to have ever been really deeply a, a practitioner of Toyota Kata, I know there are a lot of people um, out there who are. Like, I think it does add an additional helpful framework in a couple of ways of getting more intentional about coaching others in their problem solving instead of being the problem solver yourself, um, having a bit of a framework that's not just reacting to problems, but also looking at opportunities and needs you know, to raise performance. Toyota Kata 
gives a way of not having to do an all or nothing moonshot, but to, in a very incremental learning, experimental structured way, try to get from here to there in many steps. So I think, you know, there, there's a lot of it where I think, yeah, that does feel comfortable. That does feel familiar. But, you know, I've, I've kind of come around to see that, yes, it does. It does add some unique perspectives and tactics that I think are really helpful. I, I think there's numerous examples of, of kind of these frameworks that can help your brain get to better outcomes, right? I mean, the A3 methodology, PDSA, DMAIC, uh, even being a physician, just the H and right. the H and P process of you know what's the history of present illness, and then you go through the review of systems and the past medical. You just kind of go through this thought process. It just becomes ingrained, and then it allows you to come up with a good differential um, by the end of it, and you know, hopefully come up with a, a good plan. And so, I think it it, it seems like it, it fits into that kind of mentality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So we've got another question here. Um, this is from Thomas, who asked, "How do you currently measure success?" with customers, for example, something that's a voice of the customer metric, not a voice of the business metric in terms of number of accounts, sales, et cetera. So um, Greg, I, I think, or I guess I'll ask you to answer it. The question was directed toward you from a, a Kinexus perspective. Yeah, it's interesting because usually we go through these ask us anything and, and sometimes I don't talk about Kinexus at all. And this this question directly relates to that. Well, I think, so. I think of, I think of the 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 single metric that we have aligned around now for the past three or four years is um, is the number of completed items in Kinexus, and this initially came about from um, Jim Collins' book um, Good to Great, where he talks about the concept of a, of a BHAG or a big hairy audacious goal, right. and it. It's it's something that a company can get around that is typically not a financial metric, but this this metric or this 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 goal kind of represents um, kind of goodness with the customer utilizing the platform, if that makes sense, or or, or utilizing the the product or or the service in some way, and so that is that has been kind of the single metric that we've used and and it's been a a metric that um this year we are trying to get our our BHAG up to i think around 330 something thousand items that have been completed in the system and we've been almost we've for many years doubled it we took the entire preceding value of number of items i think since 2011 or 2012 and then in that single year doubled it and um, and that doubling has gotten bigger now that those numbers have gotten harder. So we almost got there this past year by going from 100,000 to 180 or 190,000. Um, and here we're going to try to get to 330,000. The other kind of typical metrics, I think they're they're really applicable in general when you're looking at a um, a, a Kinexus customer. But I think this could apply to anybody, um, whether they're using Kinexus or not. Are are metrics around activity, engagement, and then impact. It's how we kind of categorize our reports, but we define obviously activity just simply what's the number of submitted and completed items, whether they're they're small scale improvements that are kind of classic bottom up, or whether they're large scale projects and kind of classic 
top-down structure. Engagement, how often are people um, submitting things into the system? How often in, in, in the computer system? How often are they actually using the system and doing things in there? And how, how often do they log in? I think that could translate into a paper system as easily with, um, you know, what's the percent of people that are, are inputting improvements into the system? And, and we just we like to distinguish engagement and, and activity differently because it's a very different culture to say we have 100 people and we had 100 items. It's very different if five people submitted and completed 100 items or 100 opportunities for improvement versus uh, 90 people. So you might have still had 100 items in both of those cases, but clearly the culture that has a far bigger distribution of engagement is going to be a healthier, you know, longer term kind of. And then finally, impact. And impact uh, can be beyond just financial impact. But you know, the financial things that people think about are revenue generation and, and cost savings and um time savings, but also uh, thinking about um, patient or customer satisfaction and employee satisfaction. And we even we even have customers that are that are tracking things like what's the environmental impact and what's the health impact of, of doing these kinds of improvements. But I, I think that's a, a nice kind of broad stroke way of thinking about um, the voice of the customer, if you will. Yeah. And I think, you know, the view within the company and what what we've worked on building is is trying to set it up where our customers' success leads to our success mm -hmm. and having that be very tightly integrated. Um, you know, again, I think about healthcare and bring it back to the idea of uh, fixing illness more quickly versus helping keep people healthy. One, things, one thing American healthcare is really struggling with is aligning incentives and compensation around keeping patients healthy and out of the hospital and out of expensive treatments is also then financially beneficial uh, for the providers. There have been experiments over the past decades in different forms of, of trying to align those incentives. So we're paying for outcomes instead of paying for activity, but that's still very challenging in, in a complex so system. There's a perverse um, linkage in prior payment systems, and, and these payment systems still exist, but um, in prior payment systems, the more you engage with the healthcare system, the better financially the healthcare system does, but it, intuitively, it can often mean the worse health the patient has, otherwise they wouldn't be engaging. And so it's not always a one-for-one, one, and um, certainly the, the more you do or the sicker people are, the health entity needs to be compensated for. So if this was easy to fix, it would have been fixed a long time ago. But I I, I love the the direction of thinking about outcomes and thinking about time. And can I just say I'm I'm using this this health uh, we we signed up with um uh health uh, United Healthcare this this um we've been using them for a couple of years now. They have this motion HSA thing. I have no stock in United Healthcare. Um, they have this motion HSA thing where basically they will literally give you up to $3 a day if you do walking either 10,000 steps or 3,030 minutes mm -hmm. or six times of doing at least 500. And it's such a great, slightly different, but it's such a great um, kind of behavioral change, if you will, related to, hey, we'll actually pay for some of your healthcare costs 
if you do something that we know is really healthy for the body, which is to walk. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, it, that's that's interesting because I've, I've heard different reports or people talking about debunking the idea of 10,000 steps being really important. Why? Why 10,000? There, there's a story I think that I think is true that there was a Japanese manufacturer of pedometers who was the first to develop a pedometer with 10 that could display 10 digits. So of course, 10,000 is the lowest number with five digits. And supposedly this company promoted, because if you had a pedometer that could only count up to 9,999, clearly you need to upgrade to the better pedometer. And so I think it's, you know, it's interesting to think about what's easily measurable and what is a really meaningful measure. Like there are a lot of things like organizations might count the number of A3s that have been initiated, the number of A3s that have been completed, the number of Kaizen improvements that have been done. And people will use the Kinexus system to help tabulate that. But it, you know, it, it runs the risk and we have to be careful when we work with our customers to help make sure that this doesn't become dysfunctional, where people are just churning out A3s to hit a quota or a count and maybe they're not done very well. You know, an A3 that has really rigorous, well thought out root cause analysis that's gotten input from all the right people, and it has countermeasures that are tested and truly evaluated, as opposed to just saying, "Oh, we implemented that, and now we're done." Right. Uh, you know, maybe not. Not you know, you walking 10,000 steps and someone else walking 10,000 steps might not be exactly the same. If one person did all 10,000 steps over a lunch hour at a fast pace around a track versus taking short little strolls during the day where your heart rate never gets up. Right, right. Um, certainly, I think any any system or measure can be can be distorted into a in, into a bad place. I think so two things. One, I think it's probably a good thing if you walk. So while you could we could parse out the individual goals and I think the general gist of it is, hey, move more and you'll probably um, uh, be healthier. I, I think it's a, a really I'm glad you brought it up because I think it's a really good point that if you start kind of setting arbitrary things and we've, we've seen that where if you say, oh, we want everyone to submit one idea a year or one idea a month or things that it, it starts creating these these um, kind of perverse outcomes. We'll start right. seeing and, that. And, and, and a goal. A goal often becomes a limit where someone might say, oh, well, I've hit 10,000. My Fitbit says so. I'm going to stop moving today. Or there's a dynamic. I've seen studies that people who wear fitness trackers don't always lose more weight because sometimes there's this the psychology of, well, I've exercised a lot. So now that gives me permission to eat differently. And you might be counteracting the effect of um, the exercise. So it goes to show, you know, people are complicated. Organizations are complicated. Right. And, and if I could give a, a little plug, I, I read and I listened. I'm, I'm listening to more books than I'm reading now, Mark, by the way. I'm actually completely addicted. I listened to an interesting book the, in the last couple months called um, Great Leaders Have No Rules. And I can't remember who wrote it, but it's about 10 or, or 12 different chapters about different different topics. One of the topics, it happens to be great leaders have no rules. And it's this concept, of instead of having policies or rules, have guidelines. Mm -hmm. um, because if you have policies or rules, then it kind of creates this dysfunctional behavior. But if you just have guidelines, you, you can 
allow people to understand the spirit of, of why it's there, and then they can adhere to it um, the, 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 the way that kind of helps a person or helps the company mm-hmm. in the most interesting way. And so I, I, I think there's probably um, some correlation to that. So I, I thought I'd just throw that book out there. It had some interesting concept. I, I've taken a couple of things away from it. So what, What's the title again? Um, great Leaders Have No Rules. Great Leaders Have No Rules. Um, I'm going to look that up because I haven't heard of that one. But it's 1232 Central. So, you know, going for 30 minutes has always been more of a guideline than a rule. Uh, we're not like a TV show where there's a hard cut off. Oops, sorry, we're out of time. We got to go. Um, we had questions that we meant to get to, but I guess we'll we'll continue those next time. Um, Angie, thank you for asking a question here through the question box. I've put that into the queue. Um, a question about Gemba boards. I, I, I think we'll talk about that next time and feel free to email if you if there's something there that you want to talk about more urgently you can contact me mark at kinexus.com if that's something that you um, want to talk about more more quickly so yeah the time always flies does I know people schedule 30 minutes and um, we'll we'll get back into this and and do it again soon but uh, again I do want to invite people to register our next presentation style webinar is uh, going to be presented by Dr. Mark Jabin, March 3rd. He's done a webinar for us before, and he does have um, a book out called Free the Brain. You can find that on Amazon. And again, the webinar is going to be titled A Great Idea Isn't Enough for Successful Change. That's a lesson I've certainly learned the hard way during my career and a, a good thought to try to keep in front of the brain as often as possible. So Greg, anything else you want to share with us uh, before we wrap up? I always like to remind people that today is no better of a day than any other day to start doing continuous improvement. So so even if it's just two minutes of a, of a tiny change that you can make, please do it and um, keep spreading continuous improvement. And I guess the other way, this is the kind ecstasy way of signing off. We'll see everyone Kai, next time. (laughs) Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Mark.